First uh, Thessalonians chapter four, and we're going to be in verses nine to twelve. So last week we looked at God's will for us with Pastor Brent in sanctification. Uh, and just Paul's call to believers to live uh, sexually moral lives that are according uh, to God's good standard, good, uh, God's righteous standard, God's moral standard, God's wise standard for us. Uh, and, and Paul actually tells us that it's God's will that we would be sanctified, that we would be set apart, that we would be called out, that we would live lives uh, that are holy and righteous. And today, um, kind of continuing with this idea of sanctification, we're going to look a little more broadly uh, at just a life that is pleasing to God um, in sanctification. Paul starts out in verse 9 by saying, Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all of the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more. And we'll stop there for just a moment. So Paul, if you remember uh, a, a few verses back, Paul prayed for the Thessalonian church in the midst of their persecution that love would abound, that they would love inside the church, that they would love outside of the church, and that they would do so more and more. Of all of the things that Paul could have prayed for the Thessalonian church, uh, he didn't pray necessarily that their faith would abound, although I'm sure that was in his mind. He, he didn't pray that their circumstances would be easier, although I'm sure that he thought that that might not be a bad thing. He, he didn't pray for the church to grow, although I'm sure that would be a good thing. He prayed that in the midst of a hard thing, that this brand new church that's suffering persecution, that they would love. And then in our passage Today, he talks to them again concerning brotherly love, and, and the, the idea of brotherly love is familial love, so love within a family, the way that you would love uh, a sibling, your, your blood brother, your blood sister, this kind of brotherly love, and it's just telling that Paul would talk to them within the confines of the church concerning brotherly love. What does this say about the relationships that we have with those with whom we fellowship, that, that it should be a brotherly or a sisterly, a familial sort of love. And Paul tells them that you don't have a need for anyone to write you. All the irony of it is that he is writing them about this, even though he points out that, that there's no need for them to be written or to be taught, in other words, how to execute love within the church. He says that they've been taught by God to love one another. And kind of as we talked about a few weeks ago, the defining characteristic of the church is what? A big building? Lots of people, flashy programs. No, the, the defining mark of the church is the way that people love one another within the church. John 13 tells us that the world will know who the followers of Christ are by one measure, and it's by the measure of how they love one another. The people should be able to look at the church and say, that, that's the church, and I know it's the church because of how they love one another. And Paul is saying here, you don't need anybody to write you about this for you've been taught this thing by God. In other words, it's an outworking of their faith that they love one another. I don't know about you, I, I've, I grew up in the church. I've been in the church my whole life. From as far back as I can remember until today, I've, I've been in the church. And dur during my lifetime in the church, um, it, it hasn't always been that, that the people that I fellowship are my favorite people in the world may be true for you too, right? You sit across the room from people that you wouldn't naturally gravitate towards just through the normal course of life. 
But, but God has this thing that he does as he brings people together who don't have natural affinities or natural interests or natural gravitation towards one another. And he says, you all are going to fellowship together and you all are going to love one another and you're going to figure it out, right? And, and it's not always going to look Sometimes it's going to look weird. Sometimes um, it's not going to go well. But, but this is by God's grand design that he has brought people into the church from all walks of life, all different kinds of backgrounds who might not naturally find each other outside of something like this, and then tells us who the followers of Christ are by the way that they love one another. And so Paul is commending the church at Thessalonica for their brotherly love or this familial love in this new church plant. And taught by God to love one another. And not only that, he goes on to say that Indeed, what you are, this is, you're doing the same thing to all of the brothers throughout Macedonia. So, so this love that Paul is commending them for isn't just confined to their church. Right? It's important that we understand that the call to love within the church isn't confined within the local church. We see the church at Thessalonica, that they're loving the brothers with this brotherly love, this familial love, all throughout Macedonia, throughout their region. So they're not just loving one another. They're not just living in a bubble. They're not just keeping to themselves, but their love is, is inside the church and it's flowing outside the church to other churches, other brothers and sisters throughout the region. And so Paul commends them for this. And as I was reading this this week, I was thinking about, you know, along the lines of what Pastor David shared this morning, that if I were to stand up here as if Paul commended you for the same thing, that you all are loving one another well, it would seem, lately, because we hear the reports of what's going on and, and hear the reports of people reaching out to one another. Paul doesn't stop there. He says that we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So, so don't, don't just continue doing what you're doing, but do more of it. Love one another more. This makes me think of John's epistle, his first epistle, 1 John, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with, with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Thank you for doing that, brother. John has a lot to say about love and what love looks like and, and what it is. And he tells us to not love the things of the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So in other words, the things that you see, the things that you can feel, and this feeling that you're the king of the world. He says, don't, don't love those things. Don't love those things. God, God has given us the world as a good gift for our enjoyment. No, no question about that. But I think John is saying, don't love those things ultimately. Don't love the here and now ultimately because there's something greater. He says, love of the world, love of the things you see, love of the things that you feel, and your own pride. He says, those things are not from the Father. Those things are from the world, and the world is passing away. There's going to come a day where the things that we can see and the things that we can feel, and this pride that wells up in us, that, that's going to go away. It's going to be no more. We don't know when that day is going to come, but, but we know that it is coming. He goes on to say, chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. 
And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And whoever does not love abides in death. And so John gives us a reminder, calls our attention back to Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, the, the first case of, of what we would call fratricide in the Bible when a brother murders another brother with no justifiable reason except that his deeds were evil. And John calls us to not be like that, not be like that. Jesus takes it even a step further and says that if you have anger or hatred in your heart towards your brother, you're, you're just as guilty as if you pulled the trigger and murdered your brother. It's, there's no difference, Jesus would say, because that's where murder starts is this hatred in your heart that leads to a horrific act. And then John reminds us that, that the world actually hates us. The world hates Christians, right? This, is, this has been in the Bible for a long time, but I think more so than any time in history, the world hates Christians right now. And that's a trajectory that's going in a direction that, that it's, it's only going to get worse. Like that's, I don't think it's going to get better until the coming of the Lord, right? Our, our ideology, our worldview is becoming less and less popular. There was a time in history where kind of what we would call Christian ideals, right, or Christian morals, like people generally bought into that. Not, not so much anymore. Not so much anymore. Matter of fact, our world today, our culture today would say that Christian ideals might even be hateful. Right, as we talked about last week with, with God's will and sanctification as it pertains to sexual morality, the, the message of the Bible that's hateful in, in the eyes of society today. It's hateful for us to say that God has a standard and here's what it is and here's what it isn't. Right? I just read the other day that in Canada that, that it's now this year illegal to engage in what they call conversion therapy. So if you come against somebody's gender identity in any way, even as a Christian pastor, you preach the Bible's standard for sexuality, that that's illegal now. So our society is coming more and more against Christian ideals. And John tells us, don't, don't be surprised by this. These things of the world that you love, they're, they're ultimately working against you. and They're ultimately pulling you away from God. But he tells us, here's how you know that you've passed out of death into life. In other words, here's how you know that you have a faith that is real and authentic. Here's how you know that Christ is at work in you, is that you love the brothers, or you love the brothers and sisters, you love your fellow Christians, even those who are not like you, who don't come from the same background as you do, who might not share uh, the same upbringing that you shared, who might have uh, a different view of life than you do. We know that we've passed from death to life, or we know that our faith is real and authentic because we love one another, particularly people who are not like us. Right? We, we don't get credit, the Bible tells us, for loving those that are like us, because that's not hard. It's not hard to do. I've said before, there's nobody in this world I love more than me, and if you're like me, then I'm probably going to love you too, right? It's, it's not hard. What's hard is when you're not like me, and God tells me to love you. When you're different than me, when you think differently than me, when you view things differently than me, that, that's where the rubber meets the road when it comes to love, Right? And so Paul is encouraging the church. He's saying, you're doing a good job loving people. It's evident. 
Even Paul from a distance can see that the love within the church of Thessalonica is evident. But he says, do it more. Love more. Love deeper with this brotherly, familial kind of love. Love more. And as we talk about love, it's important that we, we define what love is. Our, our culture has kind of this jacked up view of what love is. Right? And any movie that you would ever watch would tell you that love is a feeling. Right? We're, we're driven by our heart or we're driven by our gut or whatever it is to, to love. And I think the Bible would tell us that long before love is a feeling, it's a choice. Because there are some days that we just don't feel it, right? We don't feel it every day. I think the Bible would say that love isn't something that you necessarily fall into or out of. Right? Again, it's not primarily a feeling, it's primarily a choice. Yes, there are feelings that come along with that choice, but love is primarily a choice. First John 3 goes on to say this in verse 16, that by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so our ultimate standard for what love is, John reminds us, is that we look to Christ. He says, by this we know love, that he, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us. And we, we know that Jesus, at least in a sense, wasn't necessarily feeling it before he died. There was a moment where he prayed in the garden to the Father, saying, if there's any other way, tell me now. If there's another way to accomplish what we need to accomplish, tell me now. Nevertheless, not your will, not my will, but your will be done. He submitted to the will of the Father out of love for the Father and, and love for the people. And we're commanded by John that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers or our brothers and sisters in the way that Christ laid down his life for us. That's a, that's a big thing. That's a big thing to do. A daunting task for which none of us are fully qualified. And one way this works out, John gives an example, but if, <clears throat> if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And I don't think what he's saying here is that, that we should rush out and, and, and just meet every single need that every single person has. Like, we can't, we can't do that, right? But first and foremost, within, within the confines of the church, within the confines of our local church, people with whom we fellowship, that there's this sense in which we ought to be aware of the needs that are happening, and I think generally we are aware of needs. Right? We get calls and we get texts a lot from people making us aware of things going on and needs that are out there. But it's one thing to say that I love God and I love God's people, but it's another thing when we have opportunities to serve and to bless one another, we don't do it. And I don't think anybody here, like I don't think that's true of us, that, that we don't take these opportunities that come up. I think you all are really great when, when you know of a need. There's people that rush to meet the need, and what a blessing that is. But again, this is, this is an indicator of a faith that is real and a faith that is authentic. 
is that we take every opportunity to love one another with the love of Christ, being driven by the fact that Christ first loved us and he laid down his life for us. Therefore, we ought to love one another in similar manner as far as it is up to us. I think it was last week, Ashley, you talked about how like you can forgive people because you are understanding that God has forgiven you. Right? That's the way that it's supposed to work. That we understand what God has done for us in Christ, and then we go and do for others as much as we can because of what God has done for us. And so Paul is commending this love to the Thessalonians, but he's also urging them to do this more and more and more and more. In other words, look for opportunities to love. Look for opportunities to make the choice, even when it's difficult to make the choice, even when the feeling isn't there to make the choice to love, to help, to serve one another. He goes on in verse 11 and says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. And so it might seem a little odd that, that he, he's talked about love, and then he talked about God's will and sanctification regarding sexual morality. Then he talks again about loving more and looking for opportunities. And then it seems like he maybe takes a bit of a left turn here and says, live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands as we instructed you. Why, why is it that he would say this? I don't think what he's saying here when he says aspire to live quietly, that I don't, I don't think Paul is taking a moment to say, keep to yourselves, because he just got done talking about how this love is flowing out of the church, out of the church all throughout Macedonia. So when he says aspire to live quietly, I don't think he's saying, you know, try to love everybody, but at the same time, keep to yourselves. That, that wouldn't make sense. Wouldn't make sense to do that. In Thessalonica, it would seem, according to many commentators, that there were this group of people who were so fixated on the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, that they quit their jobs to devote their lives to watching for this second return of Christ. And they made quite a stir in the church, possibly even in the city, with this maybe religious fanaticism, we might call it. And so they were sort of the weirdos of Paul's day. And he's speaking about these religious fanatics and telling them, like, just, just keep to yourself. Don't, don't draw attention to you with your religious fanaticism. Don't shine the spotlight on you, I think is, is how we might interpret this, aspire to live quietly. right? Be, be okay with being somewhat of a nobody in the world. You don't have to be a somebody. And so at the end of the day, it was this group of people that seemingly were drawing more attention to themselves in their efforts to watch for the second coming of Christ than they were actually drawing attention to Christ himself. And Paul's saying this, this isn't right. I don't think he's calling them to disengage from society. Again, I don't think that makes sense in the context here. But I think he's calling them not to engage society in a weird sort of a way, which maybe seems what they were doing. And, and we probably all have seen and known people um, who we might consider to be religious fanatics. We, you might be thinking of a particular group right now or a particular movement that we look at that and say, that's doing nothing to help the cause of Christianity, even though they're trying to do something in the name of Christ. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything to help the cause. I think this is what Paul is saying here when he says, aspire to live quietly. 
He tells them to mind their own affairs. And again, I don't think this is a call to solitude because again, it doesn't make sense. But if we fast forward just a bit, and this will be a slight spoiler, but as we get into 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul calls out busybodies. He calls out the gossips, right? And so this is evidently uh, an issue in Thessalonica. So you've got these people that aren't working because of their religious fanaticism. They find themselves with all kinds of time on their hands. And what do we do when we have time on our hands, right? We meddle. And that's what these people seemingly are doing is that they're meddling in one another's affairs. I don't think Paul is calling them not to be involved in one another's affairs at all because, again, he's calling us to love, right? And love is an outward thing. But there's a difference between loving somebody and meddling in their life. Big difference. And I think Paul is making a distinction here in this call to love that, that it's not meddling in someone else's life. This makes me think of Romans 14 as an example. Romans 14 talks about that the weak in the faith and the strong in the faith and how there are some people that, that, that consider a day holy and other people that, that consider all the days just the same and not, not one day is holier than another. One person will eat something that another person would consider to not be a right thing to eat. Um, in Paul's day, there was an issue of uh, eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Right? So there were some people that they didn't have a conscience about it and they would go in after an idol sacrifice had happened and they would take the meat and they would eat it. And other, other people would say, well, you can't do that because that meat's tainted and it was used for an evil purpose. And, and so Paul gets into this whole thing in Romans 14 and in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 where he talks about the conscience, matters of the conscience. And basically, he comes back in both of these sections and says that it's actually the weaker brother who is, is the one who is more legalistic and who meddles in the affairs of the one who is maybe not as legalistic. It's actually the stronger brother or sister who has liberty of conscience, Paul would say. But, but at the end of the day, he would say, quit passing judgment on one another. He would say to the person who is a little more legalistic to like, don't look at the one who you think is a little more liberal and pass judgment on them for their, uh, because they don't have the same conscience you do. And for the one who is maybe a little more liberal, don't look at the legalistic person and, and say that they're, they're all bound up, right? Don't pass judgment on one another. Just trust within the fellowship that people are doing what they do out of faith and in honor to the Lord. So if one person eats a meal that another person thinks is not good, just trust that, that the person that abstains is doing so to honor God and the person that eats does so with thankfulness to God. To the person that esteems one day is holy, trust that they're doing that in honor of the Lord. To the person that thinks that all days are the same, trust that they're doing that in honor to the Lord and stop passing judgment on, on one another. I think this is the idea that Paul is getting at to the Thessalonians when he talks about minding their own affairs. This to not pass judgment on one another. And then he calls them to work with their hands. Now in the Greek world, it was thought that, that manual labor was kind of menial, that manual labor was demeaning, that, that the highest thing that, that a Greek could get to in their work is that they would have an intellectual kind of a job where they engage their brain, not just their brute, Right? And so what Paul is saying here, that this, is, this is a bit of a controversial statement from Paul, saying that it's, that it's okay to work with your hands. It's okay to engage in manual labor. There's nothing demeaning about it. We, we might make the distinction here in our day between what we would call blue-collar work and white-collar work. 
And it, it would be akin to saying that blue-collar work is, is not good and, it, and it's menial and it's lowly, but white-collar work, that's what everybody should strive for. That was kind of the thought of the day when Paul was writing this. And he tells the church at Thessalonica, work with your hands. Right? Don't quit your job to be a religious fanatic. And, and whatever job you have, like it's okay to work with your hands. And, and I think what this tells us is that, that it's okay uh, maybe more than okay, maybe necessary, maybe by God's design that we would engage in our work, whatever it is, in the context of our faith. That, that it's not a separate thing. Our faith and our vocation are not separate, that they're, they're tightly connected. This was a lesson for me that I learned years ago. I've shared this example before, but there was a time where I had a job that I considered to be kind of the lowliest job that I ever had. And I took the job begrudgingly because I was out of options. And I went into this job with just a bad attitude, just thinking that, you know, this work is beneath me. I'm not qualified for this. I'm too good for this. You know, those kinds of thoughts. And, and I worked this job, I don't know, for probably a year or so. And it was during that year that, that the Lord taught me this lesson that, that there's no work that's beneath any of us. Right? It, it's our role in society to contribute through our vocation, whatever that is, right? And whatever vocation that we have, it's needed and it's necessary for society to function. And whatever our vocation is, that, that we honor God, right? The Bible tells us to work not as if we're working for a man or a person, but that we work for God himself. And so that means that, that there's no work that's beneath us. There's no work that's lowly. There's no work that's menial, that we shouldn't look at work with a bad attitude, that we should show up to work every day ready to give a, a good, honest effort, even going above and beyond and doing more than what we get paid for. Right? Who, who wants to do that, especially like if you don't like your job? That, that's, a, that's a tough nut to swallow, isn't it? Right? But, but the Bible, I think, would, would tell us that, that it's a matter of faith. It's not a matter of whether we work for a worthy employer. It's not a matter if our boss is kind or gracious or, or if our boss just cracks the whip. It's a matter of faith in our relationship with God, how we approach our job. And Paul is telling the Thessalonians here, take the menial job. Take the lowly job. Take the job that, that society is going to look down on you for and do it. And do it in the context of your faith. One commentator writes this, says that God raises the bar when it comes to how we live and work. Nothing about our lives is insignificant. Everything we do sends a message to the world about what we believe about God. From our words to our work, we are accountable to God for how we live. If our faith is real on Sunday at church, it will be just as real Monday in the office. The most tangible way that we can express love to others is passionately to live out our faith in the world. We do this not by being a nuisance to those within the church and by being serious about how faithfully we live our lives outside the church. Think about that. I, I love that line that if our faith is real on Sunday, it's going to be just as real on Monday, right? If our faith is real on Sunday, it's going to be just as real on Monday when we show up for work. And there are a couple of reasons that Paul goes there in verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians 4. So he tells them, aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon 
no one. So there's this underlying reason for Paul calling us to these things. And it has to do with walking properly before outsiders. Think about this. There's an implication here in this call to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, to like not shine the spotlight on us, to not meddle in people's lives, to take the lowly, menial work because Paul would say this is walking properly before outsiders. And so the implication here is that we have contact with the outside world. The implication here is that the church doesn't just huddle up and live in a bubble. And churches are good at that, aren't we? We Christians, we're kind of good at living in a bubble because we don't want to be tainted by what's out there. We don't want to be influenced badly by what's out there, right? We don't want to be seen around the bad people. But the implication here is that our walk necessarily takes us to outsiders. Our faith necessarily takes us outside of the walls of the church and into the world. Our faith necessarily takes us out there where we can be tainted. Our faith necessarily takes us to people that we wouldn't naturally go towards. And Paul says, living a quiet life, not shining the spotlight on yourself and not meddling, living a life that's built on love of God and love of neighbor, not only necessarily takes us to outsiders, but it's also a witness to outsiders by the way that we live our lives. And I've said this time and time again, right? There's a saying that we all tend to buy into that says, preach the gospel when necessary, use words. And I've advocated from the pulpit over and over again, it's always necessary to use words, right? You're not off the hook for using words if you have that statement on your refrigerator, But this is what Paul is saying, that there is a sense in which you don't use words, you can still show the gospel to people. Now again, always necessary to use words, and don't don't think for a second that you don't have to use words. You do. But what Paul is saying here is that, that when we aspire to do these things that he's calling us to, love of God, love of neighbor, living quietly, minding our own affairs, working hard, all in the context of our faith, It necessarily takes us to outsiders and it necessarily shows outsiders something about who God is by the way that we live, right? So so we can display the gospel in the way that we live while we also declare the gospel out of our mouth, right? It's both. It's not one or the other, it's both, right? There was a time in my life where I fully bought into that saying because I didn't think I had a lot to say. So it's like, you know what? I'm just going to live it. And that'll be my my speech, just me living it, right? And God corrected my thinking a long time ago on that. So we're not off the hook for using our words, but we're also not off the hook for living a life that shows who Christ is to the outside world. And this is what Paul is getting at here. Walk the walk, we might say, and talk the talk, both at the same time. And then he ends this section by saying, be dependent upon no one. Now, hold on a second here. Like I'm, Immediately, I think about when he says, be dependent upon no one, I think about uh, Acts chapter 2, right? The, the formation of the church on the day of Pentecost. It, it says that, that people were buying and selling their property and their goods and basically kind of putting the proceeds in, into a pot 
And anybody that had need could, could take advantage of, of the pot, right? The people who had a lot were helping meet the needs of people that had little. I think about that. I think about Galatians chapter 6 where it says, bear one another's burdens, right? We're commanded in Scripture to bear one another's burdens. Paul says here to the Christian, be dependent upon no one. So, so is there a contradiction here that's going on? I don't, think, I don't think there's a contradiction at all. Galatians chapter 6 does talk about bearing one another's burdens and in so doing that we fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. But also in Galatians chapter 6, Paul says that each one will have to bear his own load. And again, not, not contradictory statements. And here are a few examples um, that I found in a commentary that talked about the difference between burdens and loads. And so one example, a young guy who constantly gets up late for work or school because he stays up playing video games all night and asks you to wake him up every morning so he doesn't lose his job or flunk out of school. Is that bearing one another's burdens or is that a load that should be carried on one's self? That's something somebody ought to do for themselves. A guy who spends his money on beer and cigarettes and lottery tickets and refuses to look, look for a job and asks you for money. Is that a burden that we all ought to bear or a load that an individual needs to carry? That, that's a load that needs to be carried by an individual. If a businessman works 12 hours a day, including Saturdays, and asks you to take his son to all of his baseball practices and games. Is that a burden that, that we all take responsibility for or a load that a person should carry? That's a load that a person should carry. A married couple has three children, and one day there's an accident. One of the parents dies in a car wreck, and the remaining parent and the kids have needs. That's a burden that we should all bear. A husband abandons his wife for another woman, leaving her with four kids, and she needs help meeting daily responsibilities. That's a burden that we should bear. An older faithful church member gets sick and is having a hard time. We've had some of that lately. They need help with meals and transportation and occasional living expenses. That, that's a burden that we ought to bear. These last three things are not what Paul is talking about when he says be dependent upon no one. He's talking about the first three kinds of things. Things that you ought to be able to do for yourself as a responsible uh, human being, a responsible adult. D don't expect that somebody else should come in and carry the load that you ought to be carrying for yourself. But other places in the Bible, it would tell us to pay attention for these things in life, like the last three examples that just happen to people, sometimes randomly, sometimes seemingly for no reason, and they're burdens that, that we all ought to share with one another. Pay attention for those, right? Don't, don't, don't look at the, the, the family that had a death and say, well, you, you should take care of yourself, right? That, that's a burden that we all ought to share. It was a beautiful thing in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Right, the church formed, people like crazy were coming to faith, thousands of people coming to faith in Christ. Right, the day before there was no church, and one day like the church just came into being through people coming to faith. And it says in Acts 2.44 that all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were sharing one another's burdens, we might say. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And that passage goes on to say that awe and wonder came over them all, that it, it was a beautiful thing because they recognized this not as human work, but as the work of God, that they could bear one another's burdens and they could help meet one another's needs. And as a result, 
we're told that they found favor both with God and, and men, and I don't, I don't know that that's always you know, the recipe. Right? We don't always have favor with the world around us, but they had favor with the world around them. And it tells us that outsiders were looking into the church saying, I don't know what's going on there, but there's something about it that I need to go check out. People were drawn to the church because of this. And daily, it says, God added to their number those who were being saved. Daily, people were coming to faith in Christ as a result of this. And I think this was a group of people that, even though it was a large group, they, they were living quietly. They weren't, they weren't religious fanatics. They were people just loving one another. They were minding their own affairs. In other words, they weren't meddling. The church wasn't looking at the world and saying, oh, those sinners, they, they need to get their act together. They weren't doing that. People were working, they were selling their excess so that they could help people. And I think the end result is that we see, a, we see a church that was loving one another well, right, as Paul has called us to, and that love was spilling outside of the church into the world around it. And the effect of it was that people were coming to check it out. And they were learning about God's love for them by the way the people loved one another. What a cool thing that is, right? So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. So take away this today, that, that our faith, again, necessarily leads us to the outside of the church. Our faith necessarily leads us into the world. Our faith is necessarily a witness by the way that we live and by the words that we speak. As we try to bear our own load and as we try to share in the burdens of one another, all by God's grand design for the church. The way that God has meant it to be, this is more than just a good idea. This is God's design and God's plan. And so just as, as many people shared today, be, be thankful. Be thankful for the church. Be thankful that God has, has called you into fellowship, called you into community with people who are not like you, people who don't think like you, people who don't look like you, people who don't have the same background that you do. And he's put us all together in kind of this melding pot and has called us to, to love one another, first and foremost because we love him, but also as a witness to the outside world about who God is and what God has done for us. Always necessary to use words when we preach the gospel, but also necessary to live a life that shows who God is as well. Father, we're thankful for today. Thankful that you care for us, that you love us. Thankful that um, you love us in spite of us, not because there's anything about us that's particularly worthy of love, but simply because you choose to. We're thankful, God, that your love is not a feeling that you fall in and out of. We're thankful that you're consistent in your love for us, that you're steadfast in your love for us, and that it doesn't depend upon our worthiness or our performance, that you love us simply because you choose to. So God, help us to understand that truth and help us to live that truth in the way that we uh, love others, albeit imperfectly. Help us to love one another here within the church and help us to love those outside of the church with a love that shows people who Christ is and what Christ has done for them. And we ask it in your name. Amen.